0: Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, I am James Ives, and welcome to the Theater Podcast with Alan Seals.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Theatre Podcast, or welcome if this is your first time tuning in. I'm your host, Alan Seals, and this is Intimate Personal Conversations with the industry's biggest names. Our guest today, James Imes, is a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright who wrote Fat Ham, among many, many other things. And this dude is so introspective and just so focused on what he, what he wants to tell, the stories he wants to, to express, and... It's always such an interesting conversation in a different way when speaking to creatives in general, but when talking to playwrights specifically, just the people who are creating these stories, they they have a way of connecting with themselves and with others uh, that is truly unique, at least to me uh, on this podcast. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. As always, find me online on all the socials, leave a rating or review wherever you're listening. If you're on Spotify, there's like this question you can answer at the end of the episode to let me know what you thought. I'd love to hear. And all right, here we go with our guest James Imes. Here you go. One, two, three. Today's guest is a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, say that five times fast, who recently received five Tony nominations, including Best Play for his hit Broadway show, Fat Ham. He is also an actor in his own right and a professor and a two-time Barrymore Award winner, a Terrence McNally New Play Award winner, and about a winner of a dozen more additional awards. If I read him, we'd be here all day. James Imes, welcome to the theater podcast. Hi, thank you for having me on. Whenever
0: people read my bio, I'm just like,
1: what? (laughs) Dude, dude, like, I I love, I love the way your mind thinks. At least I think I do. And we're going to dive into this because, uh, and I want to start with this, with, with part of your philosophy that you have written on your website, which I think is one of the most beautifully well-written things anyways. What I think I know right now, you can't own an idea so you can let it pass through you to become some piece of the world. Plays are gestures towards expanding community around an idea. The idea is possessed, owned if you insist, by everyone. And when an idea transforms into a play, more people possess it. I think that is one of the most beautifully well-written things I have ever read. And I wanna dive into that to get this started. Because I think it will probably explain a little bit about why you got into just writing in general. but a, who writes their philosophy on their website? Number one. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> but number two, like w- explain now that you got you know, you got time. we can talk about it. so what mm. why write that down? What does that ultimately mean to you and and why they need
0: to put it down in words? So when I was in college, I went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. Um and Morehouse at the time had a de- offered a degree in theater, but you had to sort of go to Spellman and Clark Atlanta. and I took a, a class with uh, Crystal Dickinson uh, who was teaching there at the time and it's a fabulous actor in New York. Um, if you ever see her name in something that she works in New York all the time, go see it. But she had us write artist manifestos and I was like, what is what is that? I don't even know what that is. And it was so you know the way she sort of took us through the process of writing that I was like this is a beautiful practice for an artist is to sort of write down for themselves what it is that they believe at the moment what it is that they think is true about art making at the moment and that that is a thing that can change and evolve over time and that philosophy on the website has changed you know since i I started having a website which was I don't know what I I don't know when I started that website I can, couldn't tell you. But that that language has not always been the same because what I believe about theater and what I believe about theater making has changed over time. I just thought it, it was an important thing to keep me honest, so that whenever somebody reads a play of mine, they can go back and say, "Does he is that is he telling the truth about that?" Or when they see a production, they can sort of gauge whether or not the thing that I am curious about is happening. I also think it was it's great for. People who are collaborating with you to sort of know what your interiority is like. Because, you know, players do this thing on our own in our little rooms. I have like, a, there's a script up on my computer right now as we're talking, because I'm, you know, writing this by myself. But in the end, it has to meet other people and it has to build community around itself.
1: Plays are gestures towards expanding community around an idea. That sense stands out to me. I, I, Originally was going to give some generic question about uh, that. You've probably been asked a bajillion times of like, oh, you've written what 19 plays, right? Fantheim was your 19th full length play.
0: Yeah, I think.
1: Yeah, somewhere about. Right. And the majority, if not all of them deal with black culture in some form or another. Correct. Mm -hmm. So plays are gestures towards expanding community around an idea. We do not have enough representation still. We do not have enough prominent black stories still we do not have i believe what you are trying to expand community around
0: still yeah i mean i want to um help expand the range of storytelling about black people and and i think i'm a part of an expansion like i don't think it's just me or specific to me or i'm the only one that's doing it i think most people who are black and who are writing right now or are trying to do that in some way. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like I'm in relationship with a lot of people who are curious about that. And my particular, you know, uh, POV about uh, what it means to be black, what the black experience, what black experiences uh, can be in this country mm-hmm. is informed by growing up in the South, growing up in a Christian church, you know, growing up. Um, with family members that went to historically black colleges versus predominantly white colleges, you know, um, being in a family that valued art and music and culture more than they valued like science and computers. (laughs) Which, you know, um, you know, all of that stuff uh, helped shape the kind of black person that I am. Um, and so like, I wanted to make space for, for that perspective. And to sort of write that down so that it can be in conversation with what someone else is doing. Like, you know, you can see my play, but then you can also see a play that is about a great travail that is happening to a Black character or a great tragedy that's happening to a Black character. And that both of those things are necessary in the same way that we will go see King Lear and then we will also go see Noises Off. That, mm-hmm. that there's no questioning of the value of both of those things. In in the in the theater, um, whereas I do think that there is some questioning about the value or the the um, importance of, let's say, a black comedic story over a black tragedy or a black drama. I want there to I want to write plays that uh, feature black people and tell black stories that make people laugh, but also like make people really reconsider how they see the world um and that's i mean that's kind of a project and i think that runs through everything in varying degrees you know i don't think i've written a single play that's all serious and i don't think i've written a single play that's all comedy
1: Mm -hmm. so
0: yeah i think they have to be married a bit
1: well i'm going to get into the through lines because i know I, I want to know where your love of Greek mythology and mythology comes in, and in, in general. But so we'll, we'll get back to that. But you mentioned your childhood growing up in the South. I grew up um, in North Wilkesboro, which I believe you know. Oh, yeah, you know where that is. I North know Wilkesboro, Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Is. Yep. Yes. So, so I don't think we were very far from each other growing up. No, we up. weren't. I
0: was in Gaston County. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I know exactly. Like
1: I know exactly where you grew up. But so, so go back then though, because you said you have family that that um, valued arts and, 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 um, music over science and, and, and math and whatnot. So tell me about, tell me about that experience. Like, uh, was your whole family into performing? Was it, um, well, you know,
0: like I just grew up around, um, art and, and a, a quest for beauty. My mother always made sure that there was art on the walls that looked like us. Hmm. And we were, you know, we made sure that we got to museums and that we did to art. We did art camps, and we saw plays, and all of that stuff was really important to us. When we were interested in music or dance, my mother made sure that those things were uh, top priorities for us. And I shouldn't say that she didn't. Like she would also bring computers home every summer for us to work on in the summertime. But I just played Oregon Trail all because I just I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't that wasn't for me. Like I was never going to be you know an engineer. I was never going to be a scientist. I hate math. Um, and I you know we my uncle is a musician. Um, m- many people in my family are talented visual artists, even though they never did anything with it professionally. Um, you know, they're they're storytellers even though they're not, you know, writing things down. And then the other thing that I always think about with my family is the way that they decorated their homes and the way that they dress themselves was this really intense artistic expression. my my aunt Terry, who I lived with when I was in college and very close to, has a beautiful home. And you walk in and you can see her. In that house, like you, it's she's on every surface, you know, her and her husband, and and it's true for my mother's house and my aunt's house, like they they curated these spaces for themselves that felt really beautiful, and that beauty was a value that something that was aesthetically beautiful had value. A beautiful, you know, I remember my grandmother going with my grandmother thrift shopping. And she would find a handbag, and she would say, "Oh, this is," and she would know the name brand or whatever, and she could show you why it was good and why it was quality and why it was beautiful. And so, uh, a quest or a thirst for beauty has always sort of been at the core of of my thinking about how I wanted to engage with the world, and that translated into music. Like you know, for me, it was. I love singing in choir because it's a bunch of people trying to do a single thing together, and that is um, so powerful and special to me. Yeah. Um, but that grows out of this, you know, this impulse that I was sort of uh, born into. And the, the other thing I should talk about is like making sure that we saw uh, great films. Like we saw whatever was the you know the cutting edge of black cinema and just cinema in general. I remember like. When Disney movies came out, we would go see all of those. So, yeah, there was a real premium and value on culture as a value, um, and so that's never really left me.
1: And how did that translate then into into playwriting specifically? Because the typical mm-hmm. thing as kids is like, "Oh, I want to, I want to, I want to act. I want to, I want to sing. I want to be on stage." I, I feel like if you're if you're attracted to kind of the I'll, I'll say like if you're a misfit and not saying misfit in a bad way at all, but mm-hmm. where you don't kind of fit in with the jocks or the or the popular kids, which is I'm speaking for myself. Um, I found my home with the misfits, with the people who didn't really fit in anywhere else. Right. Yeah. But then it didn't occur to me until much later in life that there is a whole side to the business that's not standing on stage in the spotlight. Yeah. So where did all this, like, how did all this play out for you? Because you have done performing and now you're teaching, but you're like just an unbelievable talent for writing. So was it someone or something that you were like, I'm going to try writing this. And then
0: that moment of like,
1: oh, I'm good at it.
0: Yeah. When I think back to the very beginning of me writing, when I was very young, I wrote little poems that were not very good. Or they were like young, a young person wrote them. Let me be easy on myself. Let me be Mm -hmm. gentle with myself. I would write little poems Um, that started to translate into writing, you know, small plays. But like not really like understanding that you write that a person's name and then they say something like, "Okay, this is a play." Like not understanding plot, not understanding you know (laughs) inciting incident. I didn't have any of that. This is me at like. You know, fifteen years old, and you know the two. My family, as a whole, has been incredibly supportive of me. You know, my my entire life. Um, But I just, my grandmother directed that first play that I wrote when I was like fifteen years old at church, and like that was a moment of like, oh, that's that's really incredible that somebody memorized those words and then said them and they mean them. Like they mean it. <laughs> that was, you know, really special to me, and and it felt intimate in a way that I, I thought was really exciting. Which and I think is the genesis of my idea about expanding community. Um, and then I have another aunt who has just always said to me when I was trying to act. I remember her saying this to me, and I was like, "Don't talk to me about this." Jude would "You're you're um you're a writer. I think you're going to write. I think the writing is the thing." That's going to wow Juanita, she used to say this to me all the time. It's it's the writing. I think that's the thing that's gonna and at the time I was I was sort of I was slightly frustrated by it because I was like, but I wanna be an actor. Like I don't wanna I don't wanna write. At that time I didn't wanna write. And Mm. then the more I acted, the more I was like, Oh, somebody needs to write for me. Like there's nobody that's writing things that feel exciting to me for me to play at that time. I think that's not true anymore. If I was an actor right now, it's like a schmorten sport. But at the time, there wasn't a ton of stuff that felt really compelling and exciting. You know, if you got to be in, you know, a Brandon Jacobs Jenkins play, that was amazing because it was like this rich, deep thing. And I wasn't quite old enough to do the, you know, the great roles in August Wilson yet. So I was in this weird limbo moment in my career. And so that's when playwriting really sort of roared back. It was something I'd always done as a hobby. It was like a really great way to like metabolize how I was feeling. And now uh, writing has always been that. Um, I used to journal a lot and that sort of fell away and, and then sort of became um, playwriting for me over time. I think I just felt like there was stuff that I wanted to talk about and wanted to say. And the, I felt like the only way that I could do it I knew that I could sit down and I could write something. Whether or not anybody ever saw it, I could write it. It could get out of my system. It could get out of my head, and I could move on. Um, and that's kind of how I started writing this, the the sort of full-length plays that I'm that people know me for now. I think the first one of those was a play called Bye and Bye. It's never seen the light of day. It's, it had a couple of readings, but that was it. And then the next. Real play that I, I wrote and put in the world was The Most Spectacularly Lamentable Trial of Miss Martha Washington, which is the play that sort of started my, my playwriting career. It was my first professional production.
1: So you got a, a BA in drama from Morehouse College in Atlanta. Um, mm-hmm. and is that is that a performing degree or, or a.
0: No, it's a liberal arts degree no it's a liberal arts degree so undergraduate was a was a just a a BA so it it was a generalist I did everything I took a playwriting class I took acting I took directing and then I went to grad school for acting so my my graduate training is in acting and that was at Temple University in Philly yeah. yeah
1: yeah yeah okay okay so then general literal arts and then uh acting acting masters and then you so are you still at this point thinking that you're gonna go into performing on stage or or was it something like just to to finish off the degree to get in there and you're like but like where did the where where did the um the playwriting become professional
0: i i don't know when it became professional like it just sort of suddenly was professional (laughs) <laughs> like I I had for a long time felt like it was a part of the tapestry of the things that I was doing because um, if you you know if you've ever spent any time in Philly you know it was a theater community where people do a lot of different things you know you have actor directors you have playwright actors like it, it didn't there was nothing unusual about me being someone who also wrote plays and directed and taught like it just was what everyone was doing and um And so it just was a part of the the larger tapestry. I think when I started to get productions in New York and at larger regional theaters, and then I had to sort of like get representation as a playwright, which I'd never had as an actor. I've never had an acting agent, I've always just been free agent in terms of acting. So that was never something that I needed. Or, or not, I probably could have benefited from it if I'm being honest but I never really had an acting agent I had like um I had like a a commercial agent but that was that was it I never had one for theater mm-hmm. um and I had to get an agent for playwriting and I was like, oh I have to professionalize this now and that's around the time that i I did the website um' cause I was like well, I need to be marketing this like I guess I need to think about this as a business <laughs> Because people are asking to do it, and I don't really want to read contracts very closely, so I need someone who can help me with that. And that's when it became sort of professionalized for me. But it, it, for a very long time, it was just sort of a part of my theater making career. Hang on, everybody. We're just going to take a quick break. All right, now we're back. Because I got out of graduate school and was acting a ton. Like I'm. Ah, uh, two times. I think I've won two Barrymore's for acting. I've won two for directing. Like, it's just that was just a part of the mix of things. And at the same time, I was like, I got a Pew Fellowship for playwriting. So like, everything in Philly was affirming all of these things that I was interested in. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was when I won the Whiting Award is when I sort of like suddenly had a a more national, I don't know, visibility. I guess that's the the right word. And which was kind of fun, but also sort of like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> it's just sort of like <laughs> someone gives you, you know, a very expensive piece of equipment and you're like, with no manual, you're like, I, okay, sure. I guess Does this drive. What does it do? Like, you don't know. And it felt a little bit like that. Um, but then I, I, I feel like I've been very fortunate that I have had really good guidance once I've started to really professionalize.
1: When you, uh, real quick, I I think it's funny that you don't feel like it's professional until you act. You've already started winning awards for it, which is just funny in its own right. But when you do, when you do anything in life, whether it's performing or not, if you go out and play kickball with your local league or whatever, like, do you go all in? Is there anything that you half-ass, or are you incapable of of half-assing anything? Like you're all in or nothing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. That <laughs> um oh gosh. Um yes, there are things that I have ass. For, sure. <laughs> For sure. Um but you know, it's like you know, I'm 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 always late on my taxes. <laughs> I pay them always, but I'm like always like I need a I need an extension, I don't have time to do this. So I like you know that's that's an area I probably shouldn't say that on on on, on a podcast because then the IRS will come call it. But uh, no, I I think if you're going to show up, you got to show up. I'm I'm 100 in the classroom, unless I'm sick or something's going on. Like you know I'm I'm not I'm not a I would not describe myself as a workaholic, but when I'm working and when I'm in that zone, I'm present and I'm I'm there. But no, yeah, there's there's definitely things I have as I'm sure my family wishes that I called more. Um <laughs> in fact I know that they wish I called more. Well, um, every, everybody, every parent wants their kids to call more, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Theater is expensive and hard. So if you're gonna do it, you gotta do it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that that's true. And I think I mean, a lot of what I have seen and experienced too coming I mean when I was when I was full time trying to be a full-time actor this was 20 20 years ago 15 20 years ago and even at that time and i don't i don't know if it if it's any different now obviously because i'm not that age anymore but um i was with kids coming out of conservatories that Mm. could perform really well and sing really well but they didn't understand the business of show business Mm -hmm. right they don't know how to market themselves they don't realize they are their own product uh websites were commonplace this was you know oh six oh seven ish right so websites were were common but most people didn't have them yeah. and there were a lot of people that just didn't know how to find work you get i know some people come out of conservatories that didn't know headshots are traditionally supposed to be eight by tens so it's just really weird Oof. really yeah really weird stuff right yeah. that that some of us find commonplace and i are you I guess from your time coming out of your own university into now being on the other side of it, I assume you're involved with the casting, at least somewhat, right? With, mm-hmm. with your plays, yeah. um, especially something as, as visible as Broadway. Um, are you seeing that, uh, that the, that the, the, the education around the business side of the industry has improved at all? Or has it, has it even decreased?
0: No, I think it's improved. Yeah? Um, yeah i hear. think that people are much more savvy about their image i i almost think it's it's too good sometimes it's a little too slick and i do miss the i miss somebody that's like i don't got an eight by ten but I'm about to you know tear this monologue up you, <laughs> you know <laughs> I, here's a picture my uncle Fred took of me at a cookout yeah and this is my headshot here's my resume with three things on it and then they start acting and you're like Oh my God! This is the diamond in the rough. Yeah, and I think that um, we're we're missing out on those folks a little bit right now because to to, to be successful, you really do have to be quite um, savvy. And I think that there's there are people out there whose hunger to be in the room and to make something is just so tremendous, and they. Those are the people that learn the fastest. Those are the people who can be the most transformative because they're just operating off of like basic life instinct. You know, there's something to that. And so, yes, I think that young people are, I think even I, when I was in grad school, got a pretty good uh, business of the theater education. In fact, we had an entire class my third year that was just that. Hmm. Um, And so I came out feeling. Like I knew how to get an audition, I knew how to get in front of casting people, I knew how to, you know, maneuver the industry as an actor. And then, you know, as I started to move into to playwriting, I brought all that stuff with me. And like the relationship building you have to do as an actor is slightly different. But like if you've done that relationship building with a theater. It's much easier for you to come in with a play one day and say, "Hey, I um I wrote this. You should read it." Hmm. And honestly, like the first play that I had produced, um, there was a one person show that I I should go back and say this. I was in a one person show that I wrote called "The Threshing Floor," uh, which is actually the first thing that I wrote that was produced, and that was with Mockingbird Theater Company. And I performed in it. I played James Baldwin. Um. But then Tom Weaver, who is a lighting designer and who had worked with a bunch as an actor, he had done the lighting design on a few shows that I was in and we had become friendly. And he took over as artistic director of a small theater in Philly. And I said, I have a play, you should read it. And he read it and loved it and he produced it. And so that that is um, that sort of horizontal. Networking, I think, I think, uh, Issa Rae calls it horizontal hustling. you just sort <laughs> of like looking at the people to your side because we were, we were contemporaries. We were both mm-hmm. sort of, we were just out of, well, we had come out of grad school around the same time. And he was just in, you know, the probably the most in demand lighting designer in Philly. Um, and I just loved how he thought and how he worked. And we've c- continued to work together a ton. Um, since then, but it literally was me building on the relationship that I had with him from being an actor, and that was all stuff that I'd learned in school of like, how do you maintain professional relationships with people?
1: Be the person that everyone wants to work with the next time. Yeah, that's yeah. the advice I cannot give enough. It's like yeah. people will remember, and they will choose others over you if you know if you don't treat yeah, beings, you treat them. people with respect yeah but when um how long normally does it take you to to write something that's full length like does is, it is, does it vary do you ever like do you even watch fat ham now productions of it and you're like oh man i want to go back and change that or rewriting or when something's <laughs> locked do you walk away from it
0: you're always thinking that you're always like well eh, i could have written that better but i i don't and now i don't do anything else with it especially with fat ham like it's it's done um or it is set. Let me use that language. Um, on average, it you know if it's something that's really research, research heavy, like if I'm researching a time period or a topic, which is you know pretty frequent for me, that can that can take a little while. That could take a couple of years. Years, um, really. I mean, you know, fat ham from starting to like sort of watch and think about Hamlet. To the Wilma production, that that was about two years before it was like ready to send to anybody, and um, and then I still was working. I worked on it through that production and the the other two productions. Um, But Kill Move, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, I wrote that play, the first draft of that play, in a week. Um, I just recently wrote something in two weeks. I'm still working on it. It's not done. But I wrote the bones of it in about two weeks. So it depends. Like if sometimes an idea comes to me and it's beginning, middle, and end, the characters are, you know, viciously clear. The the dialogue is already like it's spilling out of my hands. Those come very, very quickly. And then there's plays like, you know, I have another play called Welcome Table that's it's about a historical moment in time. And it's like, it's taken me a few years to like get it to where it needs to be. It hasn't been done yet, mm-hmm. um, but it took you know a few years of just reading biographies of people and watching documentaries, and you know it, it depends on what the play is about. But if it's a if it's a original idea that is coming very quickly, I could I can write that very very the first draft I should say very very quickly, and then it's about a year of work trying to get it into a shape that is worthy of of meeting an audience and trying to build a community
1: well do, do you have a general interest in life with um uh, i was gonna say supernatural but i don't think that's the right word just mm. uh, like kill move paradise we are talking about mm-hmm. it's set in in elysium which is mm-hmm. part of Greek mythology, right? So it's originally the paradise to which heroes on whom the gods conferred immortality were sent, right? So like there's this Greek tie-in and then Passion of Osiris, obviously Osiris is an Egyptian lord of the underworld and judge of the dead. So you've and you've got these kind of like little nods throughout mm-hmm. almost all your work to sort of a, a higher power in a non-traditional sense does that make sense it does you're right <laughs> <laughs> yes
0: correct assessment um, no, I, I am uh preoccupied with the supernatural and the spiritual um i am preoccupied with death and both the impact on the dying and the impact on those who are left And I don't know, you know, know, I I do know, and I've never really shared this with anybody. So, you're slightly privileged right now. When I was young, I didn't think I would live very long. Um, I I thought I wouldn't live past like 20-something years old. Was that like a premonition sort of feeling? I don't know what it was. I just had an anxiety. I am now 40-some-odd years old, I won't say how many 40s I am. (laughs) Uh, and you know i i knock on wood i want to live another 40 more um but i just had this weird preoccupation with it and writing about it makes me not fear it it makes me feel closer to the people that i have lost in my life and so you know ghost haunting as a as a practice as a practice um, <laughs> as a profession as a profession <laughs> it shows up in 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 so many of my plays whether it's you know like it, there's an actual ghost in in fat ham you know the the, the four men and kill move are kind of apparitions the visions that martha has in miss martha are all people who are dead or um you know not long for this world it it's it's Always present. I had a, I have a colleague uh, who shall remain nameless who said to me, and if they listen to this, they'll know it was them. So it's fine. You always have dead people in your place, <laughs> <laughs> and at the time that bothered me. I was like, ah, and then I tried like really hard to like write things that didn't have any dead people in them or no ghosts, and I realized I kept coming back to that. Now it's not true of every play. You know TJ loves Sally, there's no ghost in that. there's there's no supernaturalness in that per se. but I, I think it's powerful. It makes me feel connected. and it's something that everybody in that audience can identify with because everybody in that audience has experienced it or thought about it or knows and, and will encounter it at some point. It is the you know other than that getting born or being born. It is the single unifying thing across life is that at some point it will it will end, it will stop, it will transform, it will become something else. And so it just it feels rich. I keep coming back to it. It's not everything, but it is a thing that comes back. It's powerful. You know, I think about that scene in Fat Ham where Juicy gets to say all the things his father couldn't say to him when he was alive. Hmm. And he gets and his father hears it. And and acknowledges like there's he's like man I really messed you up didn't I (laughs) he says that like the you know the the ghost of someone who who traumatized you saying I messed you up I'm sorry (laughs) that's like incredible that's so healing and I think that's why I come back to it because it is it's a way for people to sort of experience that repair even if they didn't actually get to have it
1: that's something that i've said about theater for a long time just chemically biology watching stories uh allows us to practice empathy in situations that we otherwise would not be able to experience and we can't truly practice that without either experiencing it literally or by watching someone pretend to experience it so it, it is a form of healing and a form of bonding and a form of um well, I guess just maintaining our forward evolution as a species because we're herd animals that are chemically attracted to storytelling. That's how our brains are wired, mm-hmm. right? And so to put all of this uh, into a great story with great performances that it's a, that's incorporating death, which you're right. Everybody thinks about it, and everybody will experience it either directly or indirectly at some point in their life literally uh until their life is over um yeah it's it's amazing like how much of a motivator that is either consciously or not because there's a lot of people who who run from it not realizing what they're running running from
0: yeah and i you know i think there's value in helping an audience not see it as an adversary you know like there's this moment in uh, there's a film version of of Ruben Santiago Hudson's uh, play, Lackawanna Blues, and as Partha Murkinson has this really great line. She's like, Death is your friend. And I remember hearing that line in that play and thinking I've never heard a character articulate to me how I feel about death. <laughs> as clearly as that. Like it's a it is clarifying. It is it is not a thing that you run from. It is it is the thing that waits at the end of the long journey of your life, if you're so fortunate to say, "Okay, you can rest now." Like if you begin to think about it in that way, it 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 transformed it for me. And like that young kid who was like, I don't know why I was so anxious about like something bad happening to me. I just really had that anxiety as a kid. I think I just was anxious and it was undiagnosed <laughs> from being <laughs> honest. <laughs> um, just like an anxious kid that didn't. Have the things that he needed to like take care of that, and then then you know it, it made me a kid that was afraid to do things. You know, I didn't mm. I didn't play hard, right? I didn't ride roller coasters. I didn't go on. I go to heights. Like it was, it changed my worldview, and it made me. It made me want to build deep relationships. It made me want to matter to people. Oh my God, I cannot believe I am telling you all of this. But like this, this is this is, this is very true. And from that, I guess it's, it's it's how I I think about what a play should be doing. Is that because when I'm gone, and this is another thing about this is I think directly connected to this fear and anxiety of mine. When I'm gone, they will still be people who want to do my play, knock on wood, I hope. Yeah. And that's in a way in a way you kind of avoid it or in a way you you can't really die (laughs) you know know, i was literally
1: gonna gonna compare it to that it's it's becoming immortal which everybody well not everybody most people think they want yeah i don't want to be
0: immortal i just want to i just want what i you know there's this old old saying from the church is my living in vain um the things that you do in this life are not in vain. And mm-hmm. so I want, I don't, I want to leave this place better than I found it. I want the people that I've encountered to be better because they have known me. And I, you know, I know that's not true for every person that I met. I'm sure there's somebody out there that's like, that's my villain, my personal villain. I hate that guy. <laughs> Hi, <laughs> if you're out there. Um, or maybe not. I don't know. I could be just like projecting that. But, it, you know, Either way, I've made impact. Yeah, I don't know. I want to offer people an imagination of of something that we don't yet know, and so that's another way that I'm trying to like, you know, evade the inevitable.
1: Yep. Oh, I think that's that's beautiful. Thank you, really. Thank you for sharing. Um, hang on everybody. We're just going to take a quick break. All right, now we're back fat ham though speaking of moving on right it's coming back to the wilma
0: it is Is it's uh yeah they're doing an in-person production because the first production was filmed in a bubble in virginia um so this will be the first time that they're doing it in front of a live audience so i'm excited wow yeah
1: that's really that's really cool how does i'm curious the business side of it if they the first the first part of it, this may be too insider baseball, but screw it. Um, so the first part of it, when you're filming inside a bubble, uh, I guess that's a certain set of licensing and rights. And then was this at what point was that before the the off Broadway and then the Broadway? Because now that it's an established Broadway production, there's licensing costs involved. So like how does that all come back around? Oh gosh.
0: Um well, let's just say everybody that's like had an impact on the play is going to be honored and compensated in some way from the play. So, you know, like the the Wilma, it's a commission for the Wilma, so they, you know, get a percentage based on that. Um and then they were a part of the Broadway producing group. Right. So they get they get something from that as well, which was really savvy on their part. Uh shout out to the Wilma um
1: so they're licensing from themselves essentially so they're paying a li- they're paying something and getting a little bit back too well licensing yeah. is yeah, done yeah, yeah.
0: through um concord that's who concord, concord has the play object, and, yeah. and licensing but like they are they are part of the like the sub rights group and, and yeah. singing as well so um it's uh it's the first play that i have that has that many people who have invested in it in that way and you know it's 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 a new experience
1: where do you remember where you were when you got the call that it was going to Broadway
0: so that was weird because it was um it was like sort of a, a foregone conclusion for a while but we didn't have a theater yet so I guess it wasn't that foregone but I remember when I got the call that like we knew we had producers that wanted to do it we that we knew all of that stuff before the show even closed at the public we didn't know if when it was going to happen or or what theater it might happen in, and so I remember when I got the text that we had gotten the American Airlines theater, and I mean that's a big yeah, house. I mean, it's a, it's a I mean it's not the biggest, like you know, there's some big big houses, but it's it's it was a lot. It's a lot more than we had in the Onsparker at the public. So, mm-hmm. you know, we went to see it before the decision was made, and I walked in, and Sahim was there too, and I. I just sort of was like this feels right this feels good and he was like yeah it feels good to me too so it was it it, i think we both felt really good about that theater and then when it came through it just felt like we could just ride the energy of the public right into the new broadway season and that that was real fortunate sort of happenstance there
1: yeah and coming out of the pandemic things i mean even today things are still tough for the industry but coming out of the pandemic back then you know not even back then it sounds like it was 10 years ago it's like a year and a half ago god um yeah it was tough it was really tough and it still was and then in the midst of all of these limited runs closing early anyway because of lack of ticket sales you
0: extended a week that was terrifying. I have to tell you, because like when we kind of knew that we were going to be happening in the spring, we had a sense we didn't. We, we were zeroing in on American Airlines. We had been in conversation with them. We were getting close there, and then stuff started to close. And I was like, oh my god, maybe we need to wait. It was just utterly terrifying. And then we just, I don't know, we just. I think we learned a lot from you know the earlier part of the season. I think the community seeing that happen we and you know it the shows that opened later in the season benefited from a very much a very like never never again sort of sensibility like people showed up like I you know I really felt the support and the energy behind the play from the very first set of previews on Broadway like it mm-hmm. just it, it, the people really did show up um, and and I'm really proud of what we did. We did the whole run plus the week. And of, and of course the Tonys, you know that's my feeling about the Tonys is if you get nominated, you've you've kind of you've kind of won. It kind of doesn't. I mean, of course, you know you want to win the thing and go on the stage and say the pretty stuff. But just being in that room, I was just sort of like, I mean, I never in a million years thought that I would be here, in here, and, and here I am, and with people that I respect and admire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, it, it's. <laughs> the little play that could or the big play that could i don't know which one it is
1: well i mean it's just it's such a a good show it it really is and it speaks to it speaks to so much that's needed i mean the main character is is black and queer bringing us representation on two fronts that we desperately need and i mean all of all of this looking back on it like yeah you said it's just the little play that could because in the midst of a struggling industry and i I hate the term social reckoning i mean what's coming out of what came out of of everything right like all of this there was so much hate and there still is a lot but i mean art again is a tool for healing but i think like fat ham came at a point when new york and theater industry really needed something exactly like it it was just kind of like everything got lined up perfectly and it did exactly what it was supposed to do and help bring people together
0: yeah i mean that was a hope and that was certainly what we were setting out to do was to make it i remember saying it's got to feel like a party yeah it's got to feel you know euphoric by the end um yeah
1: said he did a great job so we'll close out the episode with three questions i ask everyone that finishes out the episodes the first one very simply is just what motivates you
0: Mm. Uh, the potential for rest. Um, <laughs> I work hard so that I can rest really, really intensely and hard. So I <laughs> I'm working to get you know, work it for the weekend. that's that's very me. <laughs>
1: All right. What advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path?
0: The things that you think are strange, unusual, tricky, complex about yourself, your personality are probably the things that are going to be the defining features of what's going to make you stand out and, and, um, and be impressive in spaces. So don't, don't quiet those things about yourself, find how to cultivate them and allow them to mature.
1: All right. I like that. And then last question, if you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want,
0: what would you see? Oh my gosh ah uh, that's so hard oh my goodness I think it has to be a musical <laughs> I think it has to be a musical and I think it's um I think it's into the woods i th- I think it's into the woods I think um if I if I had to watch something and that was it forever and ever I think it would be into the woods I thoroughly enjoy that musical and the music is great and it's an odd story and it does all the fun things that I think theater can do.
1: I have to say though, if I was going to do that, see that with you, it'd have to be with Joaquina as the witch. yeah. Tell me you saw her as the witch. I didn't, but I I can only imagine. She's like incredible. A whole new level, a whole, a whole new level that I've seen that show brought to
0: by Wilkina. Just amazing.
1: Okay. Um, all right. Where can we find you online
0: on the social medias? Well, you know, she's not very social. Um, I am on, <laughs> I'm on Instagram and I think it's J, J W Imes at J W Ims. um Which, which looks on, like
1: it's spelled James
0: L. James, but you get that a does. lot. I know. I know. I do it. I do. Um, I'm on the X app, but I don't bother me over there. I just, Mm -hmm. I don't do anything over there. yeah, I think that's it. I'm on Pinterest. I you can you can look at my <laughs> Pinterest <laughs> what boards. Kind of, what kind
1: of stuff do you pin? Do you are you an actor? are oh, you a pinner or a consumer? I'm a pins.
0: pinner. I am a pinner and I have a pretty extensive scenic and lighting design Pinterest board that is just inspiration and I go to it whenever. Sometimes it's just up when I'm writing to just see how people have like realized things. Um I think I think design is the area that I am the least sort of like facile with. So I want it to be in, you know, in my line of vision when I'm working. So I'm, I'm constantly looking at scenic and lighting design.
1: That's so interesting. I like that. All right. Well, I am on threads, Instagram and Facebook. I think I'm giving up on X because I, I, why not? Um, <laughs> leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening now. Let's give thanks to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro and music. <laughs> intro and outro and music. Intro, outro, music. And James, thank you most of all. Uh, thank you for sharing uh, uh, that that story earlier. Just incredible. I've had such a great time talking with you.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. This was awesome. Take a deep breath. Make the world a little colorful.